Part three of The Highwaymen by H. C. Bailey. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Chapter six. Harry is not grateful. Where the lane from Fortis Green crosses the high road there stood an alehouse. On the wettest days, and some others, the place was Harry's resort. Not that he had a liking for alehouse company, or indeed any company, but within the precincts of the Waverton's house tobacco was forbidden, and all the more for that tobacco he loved with a solid devotion. The alehouse of the crossroads offered a clean floor, a clean fire, air not too foul, a tolerable chair, a landlord who did not talk, and, until evening, sufficient solitude. There Harry smoked many pipes in tranquillity until the day when, on his entry, he found Mr. Hadley's sardonic face waiting for him. He liked Charles Hadley less than many men whom he more despised. Nobody in a position just better than menial can be expected to like the condescending mockery which was Mr. Hadley's métier. But Harry, it is one of his most noble qualities, bore being laughed at well enough. What most annoyed him was Mr. Hadley's parade of a surly, austere virtue. He did not doubt that it was sincere. He could more easily have forgiven it if it had been hypocritical. A man had no business to be so mighty honest. Mr. Hadley nodded at Harry, who said it was a dirty day, and called for his pot of small ale and his pennyworth of Spanish tobacco. Mr. Hadley was civil enough to pass him a pipe from the box. Both gentlemen smoked in grave silence. "'So you are still with us,' said Mr. Hadley. "'By your good leave, sir.' "'I had an apprehension the Colonel was going to ravish you away. "'I hope I am still of some use to Mr. Waverton. "'Damn, you might be the old family retainer, "'faithful service of the antique world, egad. "'I suppose you will end your days with Geoffrey "'and be buried at his feet,' like a trusty hound. If you please, sir. They looked at each other. Well, Mr. Boyce, I beg your pardon, Hadley said, but you'll allow you are irritating to a plain man. I do not desire it, sir. I may hold my tongue and mind my own business, hey? Why not take me friendly? I intend you no harm, Mr. Hadley. That's devilish good of you, Mr. Boyce. To be plain with you, what do you want here? Here? Oh, Lord, sir, I come to smoke my pipe. And what if I come to smoke you? Odd's life, I know you are no fool. Do me the honour to take me for none, and tell me, if you please, why do you choose to be Mr. Jeffrey's gentleman-in-waiting? You are good for better than that, Mr. Boyce. No doubt, sir, but it brings me bread and butter. You could earn that fighting in Flanders. Harry shrugged. I am not very brave, Mr. Hadley. You count upon staying here, do you? If I can satisfy Mr. Waverton, said Harry meekly. Hadley's face grew harder. I vow I do my best to wish you well, Mr. Boyce. 
i should be glad to hear that you'll give up walking in the woods there was a moment of silence i did not know that i had asked for your advice sir harry said i am not grateful for it damn that's the first honest answer you have made hadley cried looky mr boyce i am as much your friend as i may be i have an uncle which was the lady's guardian if i said a word to him he would carry it to lady waverton in a gouty rage there would be a swift end of mr boyce the tutor well i would not desire that for all your heirs i'll believe you are a man of honour and i ask you what's to become of mr boyce the tutor seeking private meetings with la lambourne heiress egad sir you were made for better things than such a mean business honour harry sneered were you talking of men of honour i suppose there is good cover in the woods mr hadley hadley stared at him it was not good enough you see sir he knocked out his pipe and stood up bah this is childish you don't think me a knave nor i you i have said my say and i mean you well i believe that mr hadley harry met him with level eyes and i am not grateful you know who she is meant for i know that the lady might call us both impudent would that break your bones come sir the lady hath been destined for master geoffrey since she had hair and and never has rebelled lord mr hadley are you destiny mr hadley let that by with an impatient shrug so if you be fool enough to have ambitions after her you would wear a better face in eating no more of master geoffrey's bread it's a good day for walking mr hadley which way do you go for i go the other i hope so mr hadley agreed and on that the two gentlemen parted both something warm we should flatter him in supposing harry boyce of a chivalrous delicacy whether the lady's fair fame might be the worse for him was a question of which he never thought it is certain that he did not blame himself for using his place as geoffrey's paid servant to damage geoffrey in his affections and indeed you will agree that he was innocent of any designed attack upon the lady yet mr hadley succeeded in making him very uncomfortable what most troubled him i conceive was the fear of being ridiculous the position of a poor tutor aspiring to the favours of the heiress destined for his master invites the unkind gibe and harry could not be sure that alison herself was free from the desire to make him a figure of scorn such a suspicion might disconcert the most ardent of lovers harry boyce whatever his abilities in the profession was not that yet but the very fact that he had come to feel an ache of longing for alison made him for once dread laughter if he had been manoeuvring for what he could get by her or if he had been merely taken by her good looks he might have met jeering with a brazen face but she had engaged 
his most private emotions and to have them made ludicrous would be of all possible punishments most intolerable the precise truth of what he felt for her then was i suppose that he wanted to make her his own wanted to have all of her in his power and a gentleman whom the world and the lady are laughing at for an aspiring menial cannot comfortably think about his right to possess her there was something else he was not meticulously delicate but he had a complete practical sanity he saw very well that even if alison by the chance of circumstance had some infatuation for him she might soon repent he saw that even if the affair went with romantic success a thing hardly possible his position and hers might be awkward enough her friends would be long in forgiving either of them and find ways enough to hurt them both mr hadley confound him spoke the common sense of mankind there was one solution that estimable father by the time he came back to the house at tetherdown harry was resolved to enlist under the ambiguous banner of colonel boyce chapter seven generosity of a father with grim irony harry congratulated himself on his decision when first he came into the house he heard alison singing there was indeed as he told himself clearly nothing wonderful about her voice it resembled the divine only in being still and small yet he could not he called himself still more clearly a fool keep away from it and so he slunk into lady waverton's drawing-room only duty and stated hours were wont to drag him there lady waverton showed her appreciation of his unusual attendance by staring at him across the massed trifles of the room with sleepy and insolent amazement but it was not the glassy eyes of lady waverton which convinced harry that flight was the true wisdom over alison at the harpsichord geoffrey hung tenderly their shoulders touched eyes answered eyes and miss was radiant she sang at him with a naughty archness that song of mr congreve's thus to a ripe consenting maid poor old repenting delia said would you long preserve your lover would you still his goddess reign never let him all discover never let him much obtain men will admire adore and die while wishing at your feet they lie but admitting their embraces wakes em from their golden dream nothing's new besides our faces every woman is the same she contorted her own face into smug folly by way of illustration then she and geoffrey laughed together i vow you're the most deliciously wicked creature that ever was born a maid do you regret it sir faith i could not well be born a wife no ma'am that's an honour to be won by care and pains pains lord yes i believe that but dear sir i reckon it the punishment for folly why she chose to see harry why here is our knight of the rueful countenance mr waverton laughed it is related of the egyptians god help us alison murmured 
he went on giggling it is related of the ancient egyptians that they ever had a corpse among the guests at their feasts were their cooks so bad said alison to remind them that all men are mortal now you see why we keep harry i wonder if he looked as happy when he was alive said alison surveying his wooden face de mortuis nil nisi bonum geoffrey laughed no jests about the dead alison but to tell you a secret he never was alive he doesn't like it known colonel boyce who had listened to the song and the first coruscations of wit with the condescending smile of a connoisseur now exhibited some impatience egad harry why will you dress like a parson out at elbows his customary suit of solemn black said geoffrey he is in mourning for himself of course alison laughed i have two suits of clothes ma'am said harry meekly this is the better poor harry geoffrey granted him a look of protective affection i vow we are too hard on him alison and then in a lower voice for her private a dear worthy fellow but well what would you have of no spirit alison bit her lip oh mr waverton harry protested indeed i am proud to be the cause of such wit colonel boyce stared at his son with an enigmatic frown alison's eyes brightened but geoffrey suspected no guile not witty thyself dear lad but the cause of wit in others eh odds life harry you are invaluable tis your kindness for me makes you think so mr waverton and to be sure i could ask no more than to amuse your lady alison said tartly oh it takes little to amuse me sir i am sure ma'am harry agreed meekly it's a happy nature and he bowed to geoffrey humbly congratulating him on a lady of such simple tastes geoffrey who had now had enough of his good tutor eliminated him by compliment or so on alison's voice and the demand that she should sing again he found her in an awkward temper she would not sing this she would not sing that she found faults in every song known to mr waverton yet in a fashion she was encouraging for this new method of keeping him off was governed by a queer adulation of him no song in the world could be worth his distinguished attention her little voice must be to his accomplished ear vain and ludicrous the kind things he was so good as to say were vastly gratifying to be sure but they were merely his kind condescension and oh lud it was time she was gone or poor dear weston would be imagining her slaughtered on the highway geoffrey could not make much of this but was pleased to take it as flattering feminine homage to his magnificence by way of reward he announced an intention of riding home with her carriage faith you are too good her eyes were modestly hidden but then you are too good to everybody is he not mr boyce oh ma'am we all practice on his kindness harry said oh good night to your morning she said sharply dear lady waverton they kissed colonel boyce i hold you to your promise with all my heart ma'am you're devoted 
She was gone, and Harry, with a look of significance at his father, went off too. In that shabby upper chamber of his, Harry again offered the Colonel a choice between the bed and the one chair. Colonel Boyce made a gesture and an exclamation of impatience, and remained standing. "'Now what the devil do you want with me?' he complained. "'I want to be very grateful. I want to enlist with you. When shall we start?' His father frowned, and in a little while made a crooked answer. "'Do you know, Harry, you are too mighty subtle. I was so at your years.' It's very pretty sport, but, well, it won't butter your parsnips. The women can't tell what to make of it, having in general no humour, pretty creatures. I am obliged for the sermon, sir. Shall we leave to-morrow? Egad, you are in a fluster, his father smiled. Well, to be sure, he is a teasing fellow, the beautiful Geoffrey. Harry made an exclamation. "'You'll forgive me, sir, if I say you are talking nonsense.' "'Oh, Lord, yes,' his father chuckled. "'Whether I am agreeable to women, whether Mr. Waverton is agreeable to me, odd's life, sir, I don't trouble my head about such things. Pray, why should you?' "'As well sit down and cry, because my eyes are not the same colour. "'No, no.' there is something talking about that harry his father remonstrated placidly when you please to be in earnest sir harry cried if this affair of yours is in earnest oh you may count on that colonel boyce was still enjoying himself then i am ready for it and the sooner the better hurry is a bad horse the truth is something more hangs on this affair than mr harry's whims oh damn i don't blame you though he is tiresome our geoffrey why sir if we have to waste time we might waste it more comfortably than with the waverton family shall we say to-morrow colonel boyce tapped his still excellent teeth patience patience he said and considered his son gravely as for to-morrow i have friends to see and so have you your pretty miss engaged me to ride over with you to her house and behind the brave geoffrey's back if you please she is a sly puss harry he expected so obviously an angry answer that harry chose to disappoint him i shall be happy to take leave of miss lambourne and shall i ride pillion with you sir for i have no horse of my own bah dear geoffrey will lend me the best in the stable i give you joy of the progress in his affections colonel boyce laughed you are pledged for the forenoon then he paused and as to that little affair of mine you shall know your part soon enough it cannot be too soon sir no colonel boyce nodded i think it's full time he took leave of his son with what the son thought superfluous affection half an hour afterwards he was in mr waverton's room a place very precious everything in it and there were many things had an air of being strange mr waverton slept behind curtains of black and silver his floor was covered with some stuff like scarlet velvet 
there was a skull in the place of honour on the walls flanked by two venetian pictures of the virgin and faced by a blousy bacchus and aredne from flanders the chairs were of the newest italian mode designed rather to carry as much gilding as possible than to comfort the human form colonel boyce regarding them with some apprehension stood himself before the fire and waved off geoffrey's effusive courtesy i hope you have good news for me mr waverton so he opened the attack why sir i have considered my engagements geoffrey said magnificently i believe i could hold myself free for some months if the enterprise were of weight you relieve me vastly i'll not disguise from you mr waverton that i am something anxious to secure you i could not find a gentleman so well equipped for this delicate business you'll observe tis the first importance that we should have presence an air the je ne sais quoi of dignity and family sir you are very obliging geoffrey swallowed it whole when i came here i confess i was at my wit's end indeed i had a mind to go alone the gentlemen of my acquaintance either they could not be trusted with an affair of such value or they had too much of our english coarseness to be at ease with it faith when i came to see my poor dear harry little i thought that in his neighbourhood i should find the very man for my embassy the two gentlemen laughed together over the incompatibility of harry with gentlemanly diplomacy not but what harry is a faithful trusty fellow said mr waverton with magnificent condescension you are very good to say so adult sir adult so much the worse for me now mr waverton to you i have no need of a word more on the secrecy of the affair though to be sure this very morning i had another note from cardigan marlborough's amdam you know pressing it on me that nothing should get abroad so when we go we'll be off without a good-bye and if you must leave a word behind for the anxieties of my lady let her know that you are off with me to see the army in flanders i profess colonel you are mighty cautious dear sir you cannot be too cautious in this affair there's many a handsome scheme gone awry for the sake of some affectionate farewell mothers wives lady loves sweet luxuries mr waverton but damned dangerous now here's my plan we'll go riding on an afternoon and not come back again trust my servant to get away quietly with your baggage and mine we must travel light to be sure we'll go round london i have too many friends there and i want none of them asking where old noel boyce is off to now newhaven is the port for us there is a trusty fellow there that has his orders already i look to land at le havre now the prince by our latest news is back at st germain as you can guess mr waverton to be seen in paris would suit my health even less than to be seen in london too many honest frenchmen have met me in the wars and what's worse too many of them know me deep in marlborough's business 
I could not show my face without all King Louis's court talking of some great matter afoot. What I have in mind is to halt on the road, at Pontois, maybe, while you ride on with letters to Prince James. I warrant you they are such, and with such names to them, as will assure you a noble welcome. It's intended that he should quit Saint-Germain privately with you to conduct him to me. Then I warrant you shall know how to deal with the lad. He paused and stared at Geoffrey intently, and gradually a grim humour stole into his eyes. He began to laugh. Egad, I envy you, Mr. Waverton, to be in such an affair at your years. Bah! I should have been crazy with pride. You need not doubt that I value the occasion, sir, Geoffrey said grandly. Pray believe I shall do honour to your confidence. To be sure you will, odds life, to chaffer with a king's son about kingdoms, to offer a realm to a prince in exile, if only he will be a good boy. It's a fine, stately affair, sir, and you are the very man to take it in the right vein. Sir, you are most obliging. I profess I vaunt myself very happy in your kindness. Be sure that I shall know how to justify you. Egad, you do already, Colonel Boyce smiled, still with some touch of cruelty in his eyes. Pray, sir, when must we start? When I know, maybe I shall need to start in an hour. I shall not fail you. I shall want, I suppose, some funds in hand. Colonel Boyce shrugged. Oh, Lord, yes, we want some money. A matter of five hundred pounds should serve. I will arrange for it in the morning, said Mr. Waverton, too magnificent to be startled. Pray, what clothes shall we be able to carry? Damn, that's a grave matter, said Colonel Boyce, and with becoming gravity discussed it. Chapter 8 Miss Lambourne Looks Sideways Thus Colonel Boyce blandly arranged the lives of his young friends. It is believed that he had a peculiar pleasure in manoeuvring his fellow-creatures from behind a veil of secrecy, for in this he sought not merely his private profit, though it was never out of his calculations. He enjoyed his operations for their own sake. He liked his trickery as trickery, to push and pull people to the place in which he wanted them without their knowing how or why or to what end they were impelled was to him a pleasure second to none in life and on a survey of his whole career he is to be accounted successful though i cannot find that he ever achieved anything of signal importance even for himself at one time or another he brought a great number of people some of them powerful and some of them honourable under his direction he had his complete will of many of them and was rewarded by the bitter hostility of the majority he contrived in fact to live just such a life as he liked best what more can any man have so he told harry nothing of his engagement of mr waverton and harry you have seen was not likely to guess that any one would enlist his geoffrey for a serious enterprise on the next morning indeed harry did remark that geoffrey was more portentous than usual but thought nothing of it 
he was embarrassed by thinking about himself there was as colonel boyce predicted no difficulty about a horse for harry when the colonel suggested it geoffrey showed some satirical surprise at harry's daring but advising one of the older carriage horses bade him take what he would colonel boyce spoke only of riding with his son he said nothing of where they were going harry wondered whether geoffrey would have been so gracious if he had known that alison was their destination and a new experience for him felt some qualms of conscience it was uncomfortable to use a favour from geoffrey even a trifling favour granted with a sneer for meeting his lady still more uncomfortable to go seek the lady out secretly but if he announced what he was doing there would be instantly something ridiculous about it and he would have to swallow much of geoffrey's humour geoffrey might even come with them alison and he be humorous together there was indeed an easy way of escape he had but to stay away from the lady but though he despised himself for it he desired infinitely to see her again she compelled him as he had never believed anything outside his own will could compel after all it was no such matter for he would soon be gone with his father to france he might well hope never to see her again so on that ride through the steep wooded lanes to highgate his father found him morose and complained of it damn for a young fellow that's off to his lady love you are a mighty poor thing harry my lady love i have no taste for rich food i thought it was your lady we were going to see what the devil do you mean by that colonel boyce stared oh fie sir why be ashamed of her god knows what you are talking about colonel boyce was extraordinarily irritated ashamed of whom of the peerless miss lambourne to be sure oh sir why be so innocent how could she resist your charms and indeed miss lambourne what damn nonsense you talk harry i followed your lead sir said harry meekly but if we are to talk sense when shall we start for france i shall know when i know and on that they came to the top of the hill and the gates of the hall the wet weather had yielded to st martin's summer it was a day of gentle silver-gold sunlight and benign air with her companion mrs weston miss lambourne was walking in the garden she met the gentleman at a turn of the drive by rampant sweetbriars here is our knight of the rueful countenance and faith on rosinant poor jade she patted harry's aged carriage-horse oh and he has brought with him solomon in all his glory she made a wonderful curtsy to the splendours of colonel boyce now who would have dreamt don quixote's father was solomon i suppose i take after my mother ma'am harry said meekly it's a hope which often consoles me why they say solomon had something of a variety in wives and among them colonel boyce dismounted with so much noise that the jest was hardly heard and the end of it altogether lost you did not tell me mrs weston was speaking and seemed to find it difficult alison you did not tell me the gentleman 
were coming. It occurred to Harry that she looked very pale and ill. Why, Weston, dear, I could not tell if they would keep troth. She began to hum. Men were deceivers ever, one foot on sea and one on shore, to one thing constant never. Nay, ma'am, sigh no more, for here we are, Colonel Boyce said brusquely. O oh Lord, he overwhelms us with the honour, she laughed. How can we entertain him worthily? Sir, will you walk? My poor house and I await your pleasure. I am vastly honoured, ma'am. I have never had a lady in waiting. O oh, celibate virtue, quoth Lady Lambourne, and to the house Colonel Boyce led her and his horse, and a little way behind Harry followed with his and Mrs. Weston. She had nothing to say for herself, she looked so wan, she walked so slowly, and with such an air of pain, that Harry had to say something about fearing she was not well. Then he felt a fool for his pains. As she turned in answer and shook her head, he saw such a sad, wistful dignity in her eyes that the small coin of courtesy seemed an absurd offering. A fancy to be sure in itself absurd. Yet he could not make the woman out. There was something odd and baffling in the way she looked at him. She led off with an odd question. Pray, have you lived much with Colonel Boyce? Not I, ma'am, Harry laughed. If I were not a very wise child, I should hardly know my own father. Lived with him? Not much more than with my mother, whom I never saw. Oh, did you not? Her eyes dwelt upon him. After a little while, who brought you up then? Schools, half a dozen schools, between Taunton and London, and Westminster, at last. Were you happy? When I had sixpence. But Colonel Boyce is rich, she cried. I have no evidence of it, ma'am. I cannot understand. You hardly know him. But he comes to you at Lady Waverton's. He stays with you. He brings you here. I believe you are closer with him than you say. Why, ma'am, it's mighty kind in you to concern yourself so with my affairs. And if you can't understand them, faith, no more can I. She showed no shame at this rebuke of impertinence. In a minute Harry was sorry he had amused himself by giving it. There was something strangely affecting in the woman. Middle-aged, stout, faded, bound in manner and speech by a shy clumsiness she refused to be insignificant she made an appeal to him which he puzzled over in vain her simplicity was with power as of a nature which had cared only for the greater things he felt himself meeting one who had more than he of human quality richer in suffering richer in all emotion and what was vastly surprising under her dullness her feebleness of fuller and deeper life. From vague, intriguing, bewildering fancies, her voice brought him back with a start. He brought you here? she was asking. To be sure, she was wonderfully maladroit. This buzzing, futile curiosity irritated him again into a sneer. He is no doubt captivated by the beautiful eyes of Miss Lambourne. He? "'Mr. Boyce?' she corrected herself with a stammer and a blush. "'Colonel Boyce? Oh, no, indeed. He is old enough to be her father. 
i think we ought to tell him so harry chuckled it would do him good i think this is not very delicate sir mrs weston was still blushing egad ma'am if you ask questions you must expect answers harry snapped at her why do you sneer at her why should you speak coarsely of her i suppose you come to the house of your own choice or does he make you come harry saw no occasion for such excitement why you take away my breath with your pronouns he and she she and he pray let's leave him and her out of the question here's a very pretty garden indeed we need not quarrel i think she laughed nervously and gave him an odd shy look pray do you stay with the wavertons alas ma'am i make your acquaintance and bid you farewell all in one day make my acquaintance again came a nervous laugh and it was a moment before she went on we have met before to-day oh lord ma'am i would desire you forget it i am to forget it she echoed oh oh you are very proud not i indeed the truth is ma'am that silly affair with our highwaymen it embarrasses me mightily i want to live it down pray help me and think no more about it i suppose that is what you say to alison for the first time there was a touch of fun in her eyes word for word ma'am why do you come here then as i have the honour to tell you to say good-bye she checked and stared at him she was very pale but now they were at the steps of the house and colonel boyce who had resigned his horse to a groom turned with alison to meet them i am hot with the colonel's compliments weston dear she announced i must take a turn with mr boyce to cool me tis his role a convenient family faith one makes you uncomfortably hot and t'other freezes you you go get warm my weston though i vow tis dangerous to trust you to the colonel he has made very shameless love to me and you have a tender heart it occurred to harry that mrs weston and his father thus forced to look at each other wore each an air of defiance they amused him i am not afraid mrs weston said i profess i am abashed said colonel boyce pray ma'am be gentle to my disgrace and he offered his arm she bowed and moved away and he followed her harry and alison face to face and sufficiently close eyed each other with some amusement oh mr boyce said she and shook her head oh miss lambourne harry exhorted in his turn you have fallen you have walked into my parlour i am the best of sons ma'am i endure all things at my father's orders even spiders she still eyed him steadily searching him and was still amused she moved a little so that the admirable flowing lines of her shape were more marked then she said why are you afraid of me harry shook his head smiling vainly is the net spread in the sight of the bird ma'am but faith it was a pretty question and i make you my compliments so will you walk sir she turned into a narrow path in the shadow of arches clothed by a great austrian briar on which here and there a yellow flame still glowed mr boyce 
when i meet you in company you shrink and cower detestably when i meet you alone you fence with me impudently enough and shrewdly and always you avoid me while you can i suppose there's in all this something more than the freaks of a fool then it's fear prithee sir why in god's name are you afraid of me miss lambourne got out of bed very earnest this morning harry grinned but oh let's be grave and honest with all my heart why then ma'am i've to say that a penniless fellow has the right to be afraid of miss lambourne's money-bags fie you are no such fool if one is good company to t'other which is rich and which is poor is no more matter than which fair and which dark in a better world ma'am i would believe you and here you believe kind folks would sneer at harry boyce for scenting an heiress so you tuck your tail between your legs and go to ground i suppose that is called honour sir oh no ma'am taste la i offend monsieur's fine taste do i not often ma'am but by all means let us be earnest i believe i mind being sneered at no more than my betters par exemple ma'am when you laugh at me for being shabby i am not much disturbed she blushed furiously i never did oh i must have read your thoughts then harry laughed well what matters to me is not that folks laugh at me but why they laugh that they mock me for being out at elbows i swallow well enough that they should sneer at me for making love to a woman's purse would give me nausea miss lambourne was pleased to look modest indeed sir i did not know that you had made love to me i am obliged by your honesty ma'am miss lambourne looked up and spoke with some vehemence it comes to this then you would be beaten by what folks may say about you oh brave lord we are all beaten by what folks might say would you ride into london in your shift i don't want to ride in my shift she cried fiercely perhaps not ma'am but perhaps i don't want to make love to your purse odd burn it sir am i nothing but a purse i leave it to your husband to find out ma'am and beg leave to take my leave my kind father offers me occupation at a distance and i embrace it ardently who knows it may provide me with a coat you are going away i have had the honour to say so and why if you please harry shrugged because ma'am without my assistance mr waverton can very well translate horace into his own sublime verse and miss lambourne into his own proud wife he intended her to rage what she did was to say softly you do not want to see me that i have no ambition to amuse you ma'am miss lambourne looked sideways what if i don't want you to go away egad ma'am i know you don't harry laughed you amuse yourself vastly god knows why with baiting me why it amuses me alison still looked at him sideways don't you know why he did not choose to answer indeed then if i am naught to you why do you care what folks say of you and me 
Harry made a step towards her. "'You mean to have it again, do you?' he muttered. "'Pray, sir, what?' and still she looked sideways. "'What you dragged out of me in the wood?' "'Dragged out of—oh!' she blushed, she drew back, and so had occasion to do something with her cloak, which let a glimpse of white neck and bosom come into the light. "'You flatter us both, indeed. I'll tell you the truth of us both.' He, too, was flushed. "'You are a cursed coquette, and I am a cursed fool.' Now she met his eyes fairly and in hers there was no more laughter, but she smiled with her lips. "'I think you know yourself better than you know me.' Harry gripped her hands. "'You go about to make me mad with desire for you.' "'I want you so,' she breathed, and leaned back, away from him, her eyes half-veiled. He had his arms about her body, held her close. The red lips curved in a riddle of a smile. He saw dark depths, in the shadowed eyes. Malbrook, ça va guerre, she murmured. Harry exclaimed something, felt her against him, was aware of all her form, and heard footsteps. Alison was out of his grasp, her back to him, plucking a rose. You will see me again, you shall see me again. I ride in the wood to-morrow morning, she muttered. You'll pay for it, Harry growled. His father arrived, Mrs. Weston, a servant, at her heels. Alison came round with a swirl of skirts. "'Dear sir, I doubt you have burnt up dinner by your long passages with my Weston. Come in, come in.' And she led the way. For once Colonel Boyce was without an answer. Harry, who was dreading witticisms, looked at him in surprise, and with more surprise saw that he looked angry. Mrs. Weston hurried on before them all. Her eyes were red. CHAPTER Nine, ANGER OF AN UNCLE It seems certain that on this day Alison wore a dress of a blue like peacock's feathers. That colour, as you may see, she wears it in both the Kneller and the Thornhill portraits, was much of a favourite of hers and indeed it set off well the rare beauty of her own hues the clarity the delicacy of her cheeks were such as you may see on one of those roses which white in full flower have a rosy flush on the outer petals of the bud and the same rose open may serve for the likeness of a neck and bosom which she guarded no more prudishly than her day's fashion demanded for all the daintiness her lips, a proud pair, were richly red, stained of raspberries in Charles Hadley's sneer, and with the black masses of her hair and grey eyes almost as dark, gave her an aspect of what neither man nor woman ever denied her, eager and passionate life. All this was flowering out of her peacock blue velvet, and Harry, I infer, went mad. She never expanded into the larger extravagances of the hoop, preferring to trust to her own shape. Her waist made no pretense of fine ladyship, but the bodice was close-laced a la mode, to parade the riches of her bosom. Strong and gloriously alive, and abundantly a woman, so she smiled at the world. It was a delirious hour for Harry that dinner. 
he knew that alison was pleased to be in the gayest spirits and his father in his father's own flamboyant style seconded her heartily he joined in too and seemed to himself loud and vapid yet had no power of restraint it was as though his usual placid critical mind was detached and watched himself in the happy exuberance of drunkenness which was a state unknown to him for excess of liquor could only move him with drowsy gloom and in the midst of the noise mrs weston sat pale and silent a ghost at the feast he was glad when his father spoke of going though he found himself talking some folly against it on alison's side who jovially mocked the colonel for shyness but colonel boyce it appeared had made up his mind and harry was surprised at the masterful ease with which keeping the empty fun still loud he extricated himself and his unwilling son they were all at the door a noisy laughing company and the horses waited it's no use ma'am harry cried he knows how to get his way monsieur mon père pray heaven he hath not taught his son the art oh lord no i am the very humble servant of any petticoat fie that's far worse sir i see you would still be forgetting which covered your wife never believe him madame alison quoth the colonel it's a strong rogue and a masterless man why that's better again and yet it's not so well if he'll be mistressless too fight it out child the colonel cried lay on macduff and cursed be she that first cries hold enough come harry to horse see weston he deserts me and merrily there came upon the scene two other horsemen mr hadley's gaunt one-armed frame and a big lumbering elder with a rosy face harry bowed over alison's hand it was she who put it to his lips and nodding a roguish smile at the other gentleman so you run away sir she said harry looked at her and give me back my head he said in a low voice i have lost it somewhere here oh your head she laughed well maybe it's the best part of you he mounted and colonel boyce already in the saddle kissed his hand to her they rode off compelled to single file by the plump old gentleman who held the middle of the road and glowered at them mr hadley made an elaborate bow the old gentleman watched them out of sight round the curve of the drive then sent his horse on with an oath and dismounting heavily at alison's toes roared out what the devil's this folly miss he made angry puffing noises i vow i heard you laughing at finchley might have heard him kissing too kissing oh la sir my hand and so may you she held it out and made an impudent little curtsy i protest the gentleman is all maidenly that is why he and i make so good a match the old gentleman spluttered and was still redder match miss what the devil oh no sir pray come in sir i see you are in a heat and i fear for a chill on your gout you are a mighty civil miss you are too civil by half the old gentleman puffed and stalked past her 
Alison stood in the way of Charles Hadley as he made to follow. There was some pugnacity on her fair face. It's mighty kind of Mr. Hadley to concern himself with me. Egad, ma'am, if I come untimely, it's pure happy chance. She whirled round on that, and they went in. Will you please to drink a dish of tea, Sir John? You know I won't, miss. The old gentleman let himself down with a grunt into the largest chair in her drawing-room. Now who the plague is this kissing fellow? Sure, sir, it's the gentleman Mr. Hadley told you of, said Alison meekly. She hit both her birds. Mr. Hadley and his uncle looked at each other. Sir John snorted. Mr. Hadley shrugged and gave an acid laugh. What? What, that fellow of Waverton's? Odd burn it, miss. He's a starveling usher. Oh, sir, don't be hasty. I dare say he'll be fat when he's old. Don't be pert, miss. Do you know all the counties talking of you and this fellow? Alison paled a little. She spoke in a still small voice. I did not know how much I was in Mr. Hadley's debt. I advise you, Sir John, don't be one of those who talk. You advise me, miss. Damn, ain't I your guardian? I am trying to remember that you once were, sir. But you make it very hard. What the devil do you mean? I mean... I vow neither of you knows what you mean. Mr. Hadley drowned her in a drawl. I never saw such fire-eaters. Looky, Alison, we come riding over in a civil way, and tell me you have been planning a scandal about me. Oh, I vow I am obliged to you. Mr. Hadley laughed. Lud, child, you have known me long enough. Do I deal in tattle? And if we have seen what we should not have seen, if you're hot at being caught, prithee, whose fault is it? Egad, you know well enough there's things beneath Miss Lambourne's dignity. Yes, indeed, and I see Mr. Hadley is one of them. You're a fool for your pains, Charles, John shouted. What's sense to a wench? Now, miss, I'll have an end of this. Your old Tom Lambourne's daughter, for all your folly, and I'll not have his flesh and blood the sport of any greedy rogue from the kennel. There was a moment of silence. Then Alison, whose colour was grown high, said quietly, Pray, Sir John, will you go, or shall I? I do not desire to see you again in my house. Go? The old gentleman struggled to his feet. Damn, Charles, the girl's mad. Yes, miss, I'll go. And go straight to my Lady Waverton. Odd burn it, we'll have your fellow out of the county in an hour. Egad, miss, you're besotted. Why, what is he? A trickster, a knight of the road? Stand and deliver, that's my gentleman's trade. He's for your father's money, you fool. Good-bye, Sir John, Alison said, and turned away. With unwanted agility, Mr. Hadley came between her and the door. You are not fair to us, Alison, he said. Prithee, be fair to yourself. She passed him without a word. Mr. Hadley turned and showed Sir John a rueful face. We have made a bad business of it, sir. Sir John swore. Brazen impudence. Damn brazen, I say. Oh, Lord, don't make bad worse. 
Sir John swore again. Upon his rage came Alison's voice, singing, When daffodils begin to peer, With high the doxy over the dale, Why then comes in the sweet of the year, For the red blood reigns in the winter's pale? Sir John spluttered, and went out, Roaring for his horse. End of part three.